0: Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to a special holiday best of edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official Tennis Canada podcast and members of the Tennis Channel podcast network. And on this week's episode, we are looking back at some great highlights of our season. It featured an incredible 42 different guests overall. We won't hear from all of them on the program, but we will do our best to cover some memorable moments over the course of 2019. We, of course, began the season with special guest Canadian Bianca Andreescu and at this time of the season she had just won her Indian Wells title before getting injured in Miami. We'll take a listen to some of that conversation. I just wanted to start off. Obviously, you've you've had such a heavy workload of tennis for 2019, and so much of that has had to do with your incredible success starting in Auckland, getting to the finals there, doing well in Australia, winning a title at Newport Beach and guiding Canada in Fed Cup against the Netherlands, and then your historic win at Indian Wells. Finally, uh, at the Miami Open, obviously, you suffered the shoulder injury. Now, obviously, as an athlete, uh, you've dealt with your share of injuries, I know, in the past how have you managed this one to this point, and uh, how are you feeling now?
1: Yeah, I've played a lot of tennis recently, so I'm really not surprised that I, I'm i having this shoulder problem because I've never played this much tennis in such a short period of time. But I'm glad it's nothing too serious. It's um, just a tear in my... Um, subscap and the initial rest was supposed to be eight weeks and i healed in four and a half so i'm really happy with how my rehab is going my strengthening and uh yeah now i'm going to be going to nadal's academy in mallorca to start training and hopefully i'll be ready for rome or stuttgart and then the french open
0: that's uh fantastic and uh, obviously in that rehab Period. Uh, the last time you played a match, March twenty fifth. Uh, that that's great. That the progress is going well. Uh, aside from um, just just getting time off in the injury, w- were there some positives? I guess to take maybe getting a break uh, mentally.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. I took care of a lot of things at home. I got to spend time with my family and with my friends. And yeah, since I've been playing a lot, I think it was a really good mental break. I Just, um, I saw my nutritionist, I saw my psychologist. um, Actually, these are new people that I'm seeing, so um, I got caught up with them. And now I have a new basis on my nutrition and on my mental health. So I'm really pleased with how the break turned out.
2: Life's
3: a little different as a full-time WTA player as opposed to, uh, I guess, the grind on the uh, ITF side of things as you were coming up last year, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm playing the biggest tournaments against the best players in the world. I really can't complain.
3: What's it been like coming back to Canada, coming back to Mississauga and the GTA and and suddenly being invited out to, you know, throw the first pitch at the Jays game, bring out the game ball for the TFC match, other big events like that? Is the intention enjoyable to you or at a certain point are you starting to feel like, okay, I want to get back to my life now?
1: No, I love everything that's happening to me right now. I feel all the love back home. I, uh, yeah, I went to the TFC game and then the basketball game and the Blue Jays game. That was really fun. I love watching sports, and that was an incredible experience. I would love to do it again.
3: Now, it's not just a change in the attention that you've received, uh, but, but also financially a big difference, obviously, from what you were used to playing, you know, prior to 2019. In, in team sports, athletes often make a big purchase after signing their first big contract. Uh, in an individual sport like tennis, perhaps it's after the first big tournament result like you had in Indian Wells. So I'm wondering, has there been a big purchase that either yourself, you know, for yourself or a family member or friend, perhaps, that you'd uh, care to share with our listeners?
1: You mean something that I bought?
4: Mm hmm, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, I wanted to, like, with my first ever big prize money, my mom and I wanted to buy, like, a designer purse or, like, designer shoes, and uh, we ended up buying a Gucci bag for myself and Louis Vuitton shoes for my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. So, yeah, <laughs> we're living life. <laughs>
0: You are listening to the best of episode of Matchpoint Canada. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan and on Instagram, MatchpointCanada. You can find me on Twitter at BenLewisSN590 and you can find my co-host Mike McIntyre at McIntyre Tennis. Well, Canadian Rebecca Marino was one of the country's true breakout stars less than a decade ago in the sport. She won a string of ITF titles in late 2010 and gathered momentum into the 2011 season. In February of that year, she made a run to the finals in Memphis. She competed at all four Grand Slams that season and she made a third round run at the French Open. Now, later the following year, she was hit with the physical and mental exhaustion that can often be a symptom of tour life as a tennis pro and she did step away from the game for five years. She did return to the court in late 2017 and now she's not just a role model for kids everywhere who want to pick up a racket but she's also a mental health advocate and ambassador who's encouraged an open forum on the stigmatized subject. Here's a portion of my chat this year with Rebecca Marino after she won her 2019 ITF title in Karum, Japan. Obviously the media last season was, was so closely tuned into your comeback to the tour after about a five year absence. And now that you have uh, a year of the tour life again under your belt, uh, what has been the biggest difference uh, compared to the first time around?
5: Oh my gosh. Well, um, I guess maybe a little bit of maturity has made me realize how much I, I love the sport and, you know, a full year back in now. Um, yeah, I think I've gotten used to the routine of the travel and, um, you know, with technology, I can I can FaceTime at home and, you know, catch up on everything pretty easily. So um, it hasn't been an issue at all so far. I'm really
0: enjoying it. That's uh, fantastic. And uh, obviously, mm-hmm. coming off a, a big result, um, you, you started in a way from scratch on the comeback slate and and now you've worked your way back into the top uh, 150 with this victory in Japan. What really clicked with your tennis uh, this past week on court?
5: Yeah. um, So it was actually my first time playing on outdoor carpet in Japan. So I, my expectations are not low, but I just kind of went in just trying to enjoy trying out a new surface. And I think, um, Having that sort of mindset, but also I wanted to do well. Um, I think that combination really proved uh, proved to work. So I guess I just have to take more of the moment and just enjoy the process.
0: And uh, now, of course, uh, it's it's probably going to be quite an interesting uh, transition because you've moved over from a. Uh playing on carpet in Japan and and having a lengthy travel. And uh, now you're getting set for uh, qualifying at the French open. Uh, Your first time competing there uh, in in several years since 2011. What type of expectations, if any, are you placing at Roland Garros this season?
5: Oh my gosh. Well, I'm happy to even be in the draw in the first place. I wasn't sure when I was traveling here, if um, I'd get in because I think at one point I was um, second alternate when I hopped on that plane and, only yesterday I found out I was I actually got in the draw. So um, just happy to be in the draw in the first place. But then, um, you know, it, it'd be great if I could win a round or tour or even qualify. But I, I want to focus more like one match at a time and take it from there because I think that's a little bit uh, less pressure on myself. I just want to enjoy being here and I worked hard to be here too. So um, that's, that's all part of it.
0: And uh, obviously, uh, the the country right now in Canada has experienced, as you know, such a, an incredible boom in tennis the past few seasons on both tours, <laughs> and and most notably on the WTA. Uh, this season, we've taken a wide notice of Bianca Andreescu. Have you noticed, I guess, maybe in a different mindset or approach from players in this country in your return over the past year or so, uh, compare with maybe your first in on tour? And what do you think has just uh, brought this on? And has really everybody clicking so well
5: um, well, I think we have a lot of um, young athletes who've worked really hard to get um, in in their position right now so i'm I'm super proud of everyone who's uh, on tour right now, but I also think that what's really unique is that um, all the players are friends with each other support each other um, and i I haven't really seen that um, in a long long time so I think it's really special and uh, something that we should be proud of is that, um, yeah, both the men and women uh, Canadian players on tour are just so supportive of each other and, yeah. Proud to be Canadian.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, we're proud to have you represent the country as as a tennis player. Uh, the conversation around mental health and mental health awareness has received, and and rightly so, so much attention the past several years in Canada and more so worldwide. And in a way, you've become a, a role model role model by being so open with your experiences. Um, if you can maybe just touch base on on how you've how you've been feeling uh, just being on tour and, and do you like I guess sort of playing the role of role model if people have you have questions uh, about issues they may be dealing with?
5: yeah well um, I'll start by saying that i I've been feeling amazing being back on tour um, I haven't doubted that decision at all um, and I actually had a few players come out to me this week and say that you know they hadn't seen me in about six years and that I seem like a totally different person and that I'm in a much better place and that sort of thing so that was really. Um, reassuring that what I was feeling was also shown to other players. So, um, yeah, feeling really good about that and my mental health. And in terms of being a real model, it's not something that I've consciously sort of um, gone into, but it sort of happened just through sharing my story. And, um, you know, I think it's important that we continue to be open and share and have have discussions about uh, our mental well-being not just in sport, but across uh, across the board, like in the workplace or within family dynamics. So, um, uh, I mean, any way I can help people to just approach that topic is, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And, um, you know, I think it'll eventually become a normal thing to talk about.
0: One of our goals on Matchpoint Canada has been getting as many perspectives on the sport as possible. And what better view on tennis than from the umpire's chair? Greek chair umpire Eva Asteraki Moore is one of the most respected in tennis for her fair rulings, her command of the chair and the action on the court and around it, and also how she handles different personalities. We got to speak with her early on in the season. I think my most uh, significant memory uh, of watching you, at least uh, in the chair, not that uh, when tennis fans watch uh, a tennis match, they're watching the chair umpire. But uh, I'm I'm thinking back to just the the 2015 U.S. Open, obviously the men's final there between Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. And you were the first woman chair umpire uh, ever to ump a a men's uh, Grand Slam final. And there were a number of calls in that match. the U.S.
6: Open, yes.
0: Yeah, and there were a number of calls, I guess, in that match where you really did have to, assert yourself and, and, you know, loudly shout out. Was, was there maybe additional pressure for you? Did you feel really nervous going into that match? I mean, I mean we say uh, our players going nervous into a match, but does it exist for chair umpires as well?
6: Well, of course. Not only it was the Grand Slam final, but it was my first men's Grand Slam final. So, of course, I was nervous. Um, I remember one of my colleagues he, who was there, and he was the reserve because we always have a reserve. Um he walked with me to the court and wished me good luck. And then just before I went out, I said, OK, do you want to do this one? And he said, no, 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 <laughs> this is all yours today. Uh, so, no, of course, I was nervous. But uh, I had umpired both players in the past separately in different tournaments. So at least I was comfortable with that. You know, I knew the players and they knew me. But of course, the the occasion and I knew exactly what it meant and the history and everything. And I was just trying not to really think about that. And I was trying to treat it like any other match. But no, of course, of course, uh, I was nervous. And then, you know, I walked out there at the time that we were supposed to start. And then five minutes later, I had to go back in because the rain
0: started. So I didn't go out there for another three hours. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I, I guess after that match transpired, were you aware? Were you at all aware of how much positive feedback uh, you got from your job, from fans, media, and even the players alike, that they, they were talking about uh, your performance in the chair?
6: Uh, afterwards, yes, I did, because I had mm, so many messages and so many emails, and people were sending me links from websites or from articles or anything. So, uh, yeah, after I saw, and it was... It was amazing.
0: <laughs> no kidding. Um, does, I, I don't know if you rank these type of things. I, I'm sure players do, but is that a match that maybe ranks right up there in terms of of biggest uh, matches you've umpired in your career?
6: Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was always, you know, when I, I think everybody's the same, but uh, when I started, you know, I always set up certain goals, and I was once I was achieving a goal, I was setting another one. So that was a goal that I definitely wanted to achieve. Um, so I was uh, super happy and super excited, uh, first of all, to be assigned that match. And then, yeah, I, was, I have to say I was very happy with the way the match went. And I'm glad that, you know, I did get all the calls right in that match. And I guess if there is one match that you need to keep your top performance, then this is the one, isn't it?
3: The, the game has seen so many great players come and go in the twelve or so years that you've been umpiring at the WTA and ATP levels. Are there any players that you miss, uh, you know, watching or, or dealing with in a professional manner because of either the you know level of respect from them or, or just the perspective of, of uh, admiring their games?
6: Um, not so much missing umpiring or you know being around, uh, at least from when I was working, but. Uh when I grew up watching tennis and playing tennis, I was always watching um, Steffi Graf and Thomas Muster. So I kind of wished they were around when I started umpiring. I would have, I think, I would have enjoyed seeing them live and, uh, yeah, getting to umpire their matches.
3: <laughs> how, how about a John McEnroe match?
6: Um, that's alright. I, I pass on that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We hear so much about Felix Dennis-Bianca, but another one of our young phenoms in Canada. She's still just 17 years old. Layla Annie Fernandez had yet another incredible season. She won one singles ITF title this summer in Gatineau. She had two doubles crowns. And co-host Mike McIntyre had the opportunity to catch up with her following the ultimate highlight, a junior Grand Slam title at the French Open. I'm happy to introduce Canada's newest Grand Slam champion
3: victorious in the junior girls singles final at Roland Garros now ranked number three in the junior rankings and already number 373 on the WTA tour at just 16 years old Leila Annie Fernandez. Thank you for joining us.
7: Hi, yes, I'm very happy to be here. How are you?
3: I'm good, thanks. We uh, we followed your run in Paris. You've just captured the first Junior Grand Slam of your career, which you said before was an objective for you this year. So tell us, how, how does it feel to be a Grand Slam champion?
7: Oh my God, I have no words to describe the feeling, That I still feel I'm in a dream, honestly. <laughs> but I'm just super happy that I'm able to get the trophy to bring it back home. And uh, now it's just like, it gives me more motivation to to train harder for the next tournament.
3: You brought the trophy home with you. Does that something gets packed in your sort of like uh, carry on you hold it through the whole flight. What's, what's the deal with the trophy?
7: Oh, well, yes, it's with me. I have it with me for like 24 seven. It's no further than like half a mile away. <laughs> what does
3: half, this
7: nope.
3: <laughs> What does this victory do to uh, change your goals for the remainder of 2019?
7: No, my goals are always the same. I have three goals uh, at the beginning of the year, which the first one, which I think is the most important one, is to be healthy that uh, by the end of the year I want to finish the year healthy emotionally mentally and physically and then and then maybe uh my second goal would be probably a finish uh, the year top 200 WTA and uh, I just like accomplished my my last goal was to win a junior grand slam so uh those those are the same goals that we'll be having for this year and uh, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to achieve them
3: During the tournament I heard you being described as as being very serious in your approach to the game and definitely for being a fighter on the court uh would you agree with those statements how how would you describe yourself as a tennis player
7: Uh I do agree with those statements that yes I'm very serious that a uh, Tennis is, is my passion. I love tennis. Um, every time I step on the, on the court, I'm always happy, but, uh, but I'm always serious. I always, uh, always take competition. I, I take competition to a, to another level. I love competition. I'm very competitive. I'm competitive with my younger sister on practice, on everything. But as a tennis player, I'm a hard worker. I never leave a point to chance that everything is kind of like it could be my last time to play.
3: It was quite a moment, obviously, seeing you and your father hug after you captured the title. He's your coach as well. How important is it for you to have him fulfill the role of both coach and father at the same time?
7: It's uh, it's very important. I know it's very hard on him, and it's it's hard on us as a family. But we are able to manage it. We are able to 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 separate the father and coach, and uh, it's been working for us. And um, and for 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 my dad, he's a he's a great inspiration for for myself and uh, for my younger sister too. That we try to. To be better than him that he always tells us to not be like him to be better and to push harder and that uh, maybe one day when uh, when we're older we can say that we have achieved our goals
8: i'm not afraid of anything in this world there's nothing you can throw at me
0: that I We've seen a number of athletes defy the age curve in sport in the past. Canadian Steve Nash won his first NBA MVP when he was 31. Former Denver Broncos quarterback John Elway won his one and only Super Bowl at age 37. Martina Navratilova's tennis career spanned four decades, beginning in 1975, ending in 2006. At age 49, she won the mixed doubles title at the U.S. Open. And at the age of 59, golfer Tom Watson finished runner-up at the British Open. Open. That all feels like an appropriate segue to our next guest, Kevin Anderson. He reached new heights of his career after the age of 30. Anderson made his first career Grand Slam final in 2017 at the U.S. Open. He stunned Roger Federer at Wimbledon en route to a finals appearance in 2018, and he reached a new career high of number five. 2019 season was derailed by injuries, but Kevin remains motivated to improve in the sport at all stages. We're so used to seeing players maybe peak uh, in their mid-20s, and now you and others, even like your Wimbledon semifinal opponent, John Isner, seem to be playing their best tennis of their careers into their 30s, and uh, uh, especially seeing that over the past couple of years. What do you think you attribute that that huge step forward in your career once you hit 30, and how has it really changed your life, I guess, both on and off the court?
9: I think for me it's just been really a constant progression of, how can I keep getting better as a tennis player? And that's been the the attitude I've had my whole life. And, uh, for me, it was just the lessons I needed to learn and where I needed to get to allowed me to, uh, well, I guess resulted in me having sort of the highest success that I've had later on in my career. But I think all of that is a learning. It's a learning curve. And as long as you're on the right path, I feel that's what I've always been looking at. And, uh, it seems like, as, as you were saying earlier, there's other guys who have played some of their best tennis later on in their careers. I definitely think it's a bit of a perspective change. I know when I first started playing tennis and I was early 20s and my teenage years, the guys who had reached sort of the, the number 30 was you saw them as uh, right at the end of their careers and a few of them were retiring around that age and here I am all these years later at 33 and I want to play for as many more years as possible. So I think that perspective of how people perceive it has definitely changed. And even though that might seem at all silly on the surface, it's a very powerful uh, thing. Seeing Roger playing the way he has that, you know, I don't know exactly how old he is, late, uh, late thirties now. is definitely very inspiring. Um, And, uh, you know, for me, the biggest two things are sort of what I alluded to earlier. It's your motivation in the game. And if you can keep your body healthy and As I say, my motivation's there. It's been a bit of a struggle physically this year so far, but I've got a great team around me. I've got a lot of support from my family, and it's really about just keeping patient, keep believing in yourself, and eventually I know I'm going to get back out there, and we will give it my best shot to uh, keep uh, having some of my best results.
3: Kevin, it certainly is inspirational, and i got to say, even for a guy like myself in my mid-30s, you know, if I see you guys going out and doing the things you're doing, I've got no excuse stepping on the uh, public courts <laughs> near my house, do I? Exactly. Um, yeah. Hey, look, we're, we're hoping, like you said, that you'll be back on the court soon for the grass court swing, and as a Wimbledon finalist uh, and a man who defeated Roger Federer, of all people, uh, last year, how do you anticipate feeling as you walk back into the All-England Club this summer?
9: Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting, I mean, just given where I've been at this year, and honestly, right now, I'm really focused on just taking a day at a time, so I've not really thought too much about what it's going to be like going there as reaching the finals a year ago, but uh, either way, no matter what happens, it's, all of that is really, at the end of the day, is how you perceive it. Um, Just because I made the finals last year, it's it's not going to allow me to have an easy first round. My opponent's not going to just give it to me because I was in the finals last year, so it's it's really about resetting and I think that's what the guys at the top of our sport who have won so many titles, the top three right now, they just do that so well, even though they've had uh, you know, so much success year in and year out. I I really think that they get back to tournament and they go back to their basics, they go back to what works for them. So I think for me going going back, I'm sure it will elicit a lot of great memories that I had last year, but If I'm healthy and and where I want to be, I'll be really getting back to business. And that's taking care of the details each and every day. It sounds pretty boring on the outside, but I think that's what it takes. And that's what allows you to have uh, the most amount of success.
0: Moving away from the clay and fast-forwarding to the third Grand Slam of the season now on the tennis calendar, we had a captivating two weeks at the All-England Club. Simona Halep won her second Grand Slam title there, defeating Serena Williams with a superb straight-set performance. One Halep called the perfect match. On the men's side, Tennis.com called it the match of the decade. I should digress. I do disagree. But the 2019 Wimbledon Finals clash between Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic was compelling edge of your seat that grip fans of the sport globally again as he so often has over the better part of the last decade it was Novak Djokovic despite teetering on the brink finding a way to capture another major and stick another dagger in the hearts of Fed fans we spoke with commentator and presenter for Love Sport Radio Abigail Johnson for her perspective on the thrilling four-hour 57-minute match. We were treated to truly an epic encounter in Sunday's final. We'll we'll start with that. Djokovic defeating Federer in a seesaw match. 7-6, 1-6, 7-6, 4-6, 13-12. For you, where do you think this final would rank among maybe all-time great matches in terms of quality, atmosphere, and and really everything that was at stake?
10: I mean, it's massive um, across the scale. It's got to be right up there. Um, I think... For, for Djokovic, I mean, he called it one of his best mental victories, but with so much on the line in this particular match, he had um, the Grand Slam records, obviously, as the big thing. If Federer had won this one, there would have been six Grand Slams between him and Djokovic. Now there's only the four. So I think in that respect, and here at the present moment, that's absolutely massive. But, you know, first Grand Slam to go to uh tie break at 12 all in the fifth set which has happened quite quickly after that rule got introduced so it's going to go down in history for for a number of reasons as far as records are concerned as far as the quality of the match goes i'm i wouldn't put it up there with the 2008 wimbledon final i think that both jokovic and federer will look back at the match and see opportunities missed i felt like jokovic was giving federer a lot more openings than he usually would when these two face off in a slam final. He's kind of known for not really giving an inch when it really matters. And to be fair, it was again a case of Djokovic rising in the big moments, in the pressure moments, that throughout the clash, there were opening, giving, you know, the, a missed second serve returns, those kinds of things. And and Federer at times just wasn't really capitalizing. and. Vice versa, Federer was kind of making some mistakes and you were expecting Djokovic to kind of come roaring through and at times it just wasn't happening. So while there were some amazing shots and brilliant exchanges throughout the clash, I wouldn't put it up right up there with, with quality clashes like the 2008 final. I'm not sure about you guys.
3: Yeah, that 2008 final for me is is clearly the one that I'm going to go back and, and compare it to because it was a, a long, epic five-set final between two of the, the all-time greats. But it doesn't quite come close for me either to that 2008 one. Uh, that one, to me, you know, the first one where Rafa dethrones Roger at Wimbledon after Federer taking the previous two, uh, that was pretty shocking in in many ways. A lot of people didn't know if Rafa would be able to do that. We knew he was such a great clay court player, uh, obviously, at that point. But he hadn't yet proven himself capable of, of winning slams, as, as he has since then, obviously, on the other surfaces. So that was a big one. And and also now we know that Rafa, Roger, Novak, they're, they're three, the three all-time greats, no matter what happens for the rest of their careers. That's established. So regardless, I think, of, of who wins at this point, we already know and acknowledge their greatness. Whereas back in 2008, there was still a whole lot more up in the air, I feel like.
10: Yeah, I, I would definitely say so. Um, I mean, one of the things I found really interesting about this final, and I'm not sure about you guys, is that from the offset, I was pretty convinced that Djokovic was going to win in five sets to the point where I was sat watching this surrounded by Federer fans. And every time Federer <laughs> won a, a set, they would get so excited. And I was probably a killjoy. I was like, yeah, he, he'll, he'll lose the second, he'll lose the next set. <laughs> And then, and then when he won the fourth set, I was like, "Yeah, no, it's, it, he'll lose in five." <laughs> um, and it, the, the, the real shocking moment for me in that final was when Federer actually broke to serve for the championship, because I just never, I, I never saw that coming. Because when I looked at this match, I thought it doesn't matter what game plan Federer brings to the table. He w- he was going for it. He was aggressive for much of the clash, which is what he needed to do against Djokovic, a, a player like Djokovic who, you know, will wear you down in the long rallies he really had to had to go for it and I think that, you know, in, in that second set, in that fourth set he really stepped up and he did that. But the mental strength of Novak Djokovic is what stands out and when it comes to a grand slam final, even if he's not at his best, he always finds a way through. So even as Federer had those two championship points, I did not believe that it was going to go his way. Just because whether it is in tie breaks, whatever it takes, Djokovic just finds a way to grind
3: through
0: you are listening to the best of the episode of match point Canada remember you can find all of our podcasts for the year and going back available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, RSS, and Megaphone. We were treated to a special week this year in Toronto as the women were competing in Rogers Cup from Aviva Center while the men played in Montreal. And co-host Mike McIntyre and I had the privilege of doing daily podcasts on site. We had fantastic player access, so thank you to Tennis Canada for that. And we also spoke with some of the best tennis journalists in the sport. So before we get to the athletes, for fans of the Women's Tennis Tour, you'll be surely familiar with the work of our next guest, Courtney Wynn. She runs the official WTA Insider account on Twitter. She gives in-depth news and analysis about all the need-to-know facts covering women's players. She's co-host of the No Challenges remaining podcast, and she's a wealth of knowledge at all levels of the sport. She's also opinionated and keen to tackle biases within tennis media that are still prevalent today. Let's listen back to our conversation with Courtney when she was down in Toronto to cover Rogers Cup
3: comparing the men's tour to the women's tour and I always wonder like why can't you just appreciate both of them for what they are? I grew up loving watching both men's and women's tour. Um how do you see that space for both of them? And where do you get the patience to deal with all these people online that sometimes engage with you and and you know you you are a defender of definitely as you said women's sports and women's tennis. Where do you get the patience to deal with these people?
4: I don't. I mean, like, I'm constantly angry. I mean, I say this all the time. I'm <laughs> As
3: she's smiling here. As I'm studio. smiling oh. here, but
4: I'm constantly seething. I mean, I think it, everything is an uphill battle, and I see the little, you know, the significant structural problems that we have in terms of why it's an uneven playing field between the men and the women, and also just the very micro, you know, issues that, that happen, just the way, the language that is used to discuss a men's upset versus a women's upset. Hmm. What happens when a Milos Raonic gets broken When he's serving for a match, but a Bianca Andreescu gets broken, how those two different things are framed. More often than not, either Milos got a little tight or, you know, the other player had a great return game or whatever. And in the other instance, it's always a choke or Mm. nervous or emotionally weak. There's Mm. the language that we use to discuss both tours is very different. Um, And that's one thing that, that that's kind of not structural. That's just cultural. Like that's how we're taught. You know, yeah. and that comes from broadcasters because you grow up and you you hear how the sport is is discussed, and so you parrot that same language. And it takes effort to break out of it. I've had to, you know, make effort to break out of it. To I wasn't to change habits, to, right? change habits yeah. to realize, oh wow, yeah, no, I I am not going to describe that this way. Yeah, you know, and you know, and and so you have to be very mindful of 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 being of trying to do things the fair way because actually everything's skewed to do things the unequal way, you know, the unfair way to treat them desperately. I think that this sport is an amazing one. And what I don't understand is like, Tennis is so special because you do have the men and women competing side by side. LPGA and PGA don't have that. WNBA and NBA don't have that. Any other sport where there's a male and female counterpart, they don't compete at the same event, same site, side by side, sharing courts, going back to back. They don't sh- sell a singular ticket that allows you to see both. I mean, th- these are things should be celebrated yeah, yeah, about so tennis. It's so unique, so progressive. Um, you know, and yet even now in 2019 there's still people who want to divide it and who want to say that one that it that one is better without the other or and that I don't understand because it seems like now in 2019 given the current climate tennis should be put on the pedestal like every other sport should be looking at us and saying wow that's phenomenal yeah but no like now everybody like even within our own sport we can't even get on the same page and say, wow, it's phenomenal. Yes. And that's, that's, that is always incredibly heartbreaking to me.
0: I, of course, mentioned the player access, and we have a handful to get to in order. We'll now hear from Bianca Andreescu as she got set to face Jeannie Bouchard in the first round of Rogers Cup. Of course, she went on to win the tournament. We spoke with Jeannie as she appeared on her first ever podcast joining Matchpoint Canada. We also look back at conversations with Karolina Pliskova and Alina Svitolina.
3: Yesterday at the draw ceremony, there was uh, quite the reaction when we saw who you were going to be playing in your first round match, even yourself. I think you said something like, of course, (laughs) it it had to be, right? So what was going through your mind when you realized you're going to face Genie, And what does that match offer you in terms of a unique challenge, perhaps?
11: Yeah, I was definitely in shock because there's only, I think, three Canadians in the draw. So I was pretty in awe, but that's how tennis works you never know who you're gonna pick in the first round second round third round um so i'm just gonna go out there try not to focus on who's on the other side like i always say and um just enjoy playing in front of my home crowd because i haven't played here since 2017 i think so i'm really looking forward to it
0: And uh, just speaking of that opportunity, it's going to be Center Court Tuesday night, Aviva Center in in Toronto. Are these the type of moments maybe you uh, dreamed of when you're growing up playing?
11: Yeah, I live for these moments. I love playing in front of big crowds and big stages, uh, especially in my home crowd, because I think having the crowd support you um, really makes a difference, especially in key moments wanted to
3: ask you about your connection sort of with Naomi Osaka obviously you're both Indian Wells uh, champions uh, she's added a little bit more to her resume, but she's also <laughs> slightly older than you. Uh, she's talked recently about just the pressure that she's felt and, and how she's handled the, the fame and the success in particular since her second slam in Australia. Uh, you, on the other hand, when we've spoken in the past, you've said you love the attention. It's really something that you're relishing. Uh, has that changed at all over the course of this season for you? And what do you do to sort of you know protect yourself, if you will, at some level from all the added notoriety?
11: Yeah, definitely after Indian Wells, I've been getting way more attention than usual, Um, but I've been dealing with it pretty well. Uh, At first, it was overwhelming, of course, because it's something new, but um, I'm starting to get used to it. I don't want to sound cocky or anything, (laughs) but um, that's part of the sport, especially when you're um, top 50, top 100. Uh, Now I'm top 30, which is slightly even more. And now coming back into um, competition mode and back into the Rogers Cup, I'm definitely feeling more attention. Um, But like I said, I'm dealing with it pretty well. I try not to go on my phone too much. I try not to look at the comments because that makes me overwhelmed. And it's really nice to have uh, amazing people around me that help me stay grounded and um, look at me as more than just an athlete.
3: So Jeannie, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us this afternoon and uh, you just admitted to us off here that this is the first podcast you've ever recorded, is that true?
12: That's right, you guys are the lucky number one. So
3: on that note, um, if my calculations are correct, this is your 12th Rogers Cup already going back (laughs) to the early days and including qualifying, Uh, yet you're only 25 years old. How does it feel when you put that in perspective that you've been doing this tournament for, for so long now?
12: Uh, that makes me sound really old. Um, I did not realize I was 12. Uh, wow. Um, you know, obviously getting wild cards when I was young was, um, you know, part of the process and super helpful to me, I think, to improve. So it's cool. You know, this is our only uh, tournament in Canada. So um, obviously I'm here to play it every year of my career
0: and uh yeah obviously a lot changes in 12 years maybe thinking back to when you were a a teenager what was maybe the pressure like back then either playing in your hometown or playing in toronto and uh what's different about how you approach it uh today as a woman well
12: i'm a girl okay okay. (laughs) (laughs) um well obviously the first couple years it's uh it would be the biggest tournament of the year for me and um a really yeah just a b- a big deal and uh, i'd be so excited obviously nervous um but you know playing in front of so many people and things like that obviously when you're 14 15 16 is um that's where it's it's the beginning of it so obviously that helped i think in my progression and um now coming back it's actually so enjoyable just coming back because it feels like coming home and the tournament and the people really make an effort to treat us, the Canadians, like really special, um, both tournament directors in both, both cities. And Carl this week is, uh, is amazing. And, um, you know, anything we need or any help we can get, they, they give it to us. And that's different from other tournaments throughout the year. So um, I just try to like enjoy every moment
3: yesterday at the draw ceremony there was like an audible gasp from those in attendance when they saw your name next to uh, Canada's other top tennis player Bianca Andreescu Uh, where were you and how did you find out who you would be playing and uh, obviously we want to know what's your reaction to this big uh, all Canadian matchup
12: yeah I think uh, I don't even know where I was I didn't I didn't know until like a couple hours later Um, but I think it's just funny because you know we're only three canadians in the draw and for us to play each other so i i laughed and i was like wow this is funny but actually i think it's cool because um you know hopefully the fans will enjoy seeing two canadians play against each other and one canadian will win for sure and um i just want to enjoy the moment and, and be ready for a tough battle
0: and uh from your experience just playing with her in practices i know you played against her at newport beach earlier in the year uh what makes her such a tough opponent and on your side of things what will you have to do to counteract that
12: yeah well hopefully I can do better than th- that match in Newport um she's I think the biggest thing she's good at is uh her competitiveness you know she's always there fighting and uh she can do so much with her game you know she can really hit it hard from the baseline but she also has you know great touch and and slices and, and drop shots and things like that so I want to be ready for everything. I know that's cliche, but it's uh, really the truth. In the in the heat of battle, you really got to be prepared. It's
3: so no secret that these past few months have been tough on you on the court in terms of your tennis results. What are some things you're trying to do both on and off the court? Maybe touch base a little bit on your your new coaching arrangement with mm-hmm. uh, Jorge Tadero to try and uh, and change things up for you.
12: Yeah, I've been working with Jorge, my new coach, for a couple of weeks now, and it's been going really well. It's a little bit different than um, certain coaches I've worked with in the past. He's Argentinian, he's very tough. We put in a lot of hours, and uh, we're just trying to get my game um, back to where I feel really comfortable and good on the court. You know, maybe making things a little simpler, a little more natural. Um, so we're working on things, and when you change, usually it uh, gets worse before it gets better. So, but I think we're on the right path.
0: And I know uh, for you, you make a great use of social media. It, you know, it might be a cliche question in terms of... <laughs> it is, uh, but it's okay. Yeah, yeah. No, well, just uh, <laughs> as a pro athlete uh, mm-hmm. using social media, and I know you like to use it, but you've obviously obviously seeing the good and the bad from that between, you know, people who think they know what's best for your tennis game and uh, people who think they can be your next Super Bowl date. Uh, (laughs) How do you manage, how do you sort of manage that unwanted attention and also, uh, you know, provide social media that your fans love and and still embrace?
12: Yeah, I think it's a, a new era of, of how we live and it's, for people um, in the public eye, you know, to, to really be able to interact directly with fans. I think it's a great tool and I love to use it. And, you know, I, I obviously see myself as, an, as a normal person and I use it as I would if I just, you know, was going to university or, you know, doing like what my sisters do or something like that. So it comes very natural to our generation um, and we all use it a lot. And hopefully fans love to see what I post. And, um, you know, I just try to take the negativity, um, kind of as a backwards compliment you know i mean i know you're talking negative about me but at least you're talking about me yeah. um but you know they the comments and everything like that is so beyond ridiculous that it's not even worth um you know putting energy into responding to
3: i gotta say on a personal note thank you for the retweet on my lumberjack uh, oh that was you yeah
12: oh my god did you like my shirt
3: well, it's very Canadian. It's right? cool, like, to me, right? I, my dad's got one of those old that used to wear like camping, right? Or so like kinda those like flannel a, kind of things. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So was that on purpose to throw in a little Canadiana into your? No,
12: uh, I didn't. I didn't realize. I I just it's a new shirt I had, and I was like, I think this print is coming back in style, and I'm very okay. into fashion, so I was yeah. like, I gotta I gotta wear it before anyone else does. Well, I'm glad it didn't offend you, anyways. No, <laughs> it was awesome.
13: Oh yeah.
0: just wanted to start now uh, for for those who don't know you've been dubbed the Ace Queen uh, as a nickname and it's a well-deserved nickname because you lead the tour in aces this season 346 for you when did you develop such a powerful serve and is that a nickname you enjoy?
8: I mean, um, of course, I enjoy it because the fans made it, so it's not something what I would really choose. But uh, because I won a couple years in a row, um, so I always uh, have the most aces in in the last couple of years. One year it was, I think, my partner Julia Gerges, so it was, it's it's uh, somebody who I know as well. But I'm just happy that my serve is uh, is that good, that it's working, and um, that I can, you know, win a lot of matches with that. And of course, if you see me, I'm quite tall, so. Uh, it's quite obvious that the serve is going to be great, but of course there's a lot of tall girls and the serve is not that good. So I think the technique, since I was small, was very good. So that's why it's working.
0: Fantastic. And uh, just, just last question, um, we saw you make such a great run at the uh, Australian Open, reaching the semifinals, coming back uh, for a great victory over Serena Williams. Do you think that can be sort of a signature win for you in your, your career of taking, I guess, sort of that one final step and, uh, and, and winning a Grand Slam?
8: I think I'm every time getting just uh, closer, closer. I'm just, you know, trying always to use the chance to go uh, second week, which I almost always do. And then um, you can face tough players. So it also depends a little bit on luck on the draw. And then I feel like I'm always super close. Austria was close because then I lost to Osaka. She won, you know. So um, I feel like I can beat good players, Uh, maybe a little bit more luck. And um, I feel like I can do it.
3: So Alina, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Got to start right off the bat with Jem's uh, life, which is something that uh, people on Twitter, social media, tennis fans in general seem to have really taken to over the last little while. Can you tell us how did that come about? Whose idea between the two of you and uh, where, where you see that going in the future?
13: well uh obviously the um the idea was from the most creative person in the relationship. It's a uh, girl, <laughs> but um you know it's uh came up uh, with the just um uh, uh from the first thing it was uh because we wanted to share uh with the fans and uh Try to, you know, to give something back. And uh, we're doing um, some stuff uh, that we try to to share with fans and uh, try to do some charity events as well. He helps me a lot with my foundation as well, so, which is uh, amazing. So it's uh, something yeah we want to give back and uh, what we can control. Uh, and uh, that's it.
3: And being that you're both two professional tennis players, it must help you both in different ways to bring things out of each other, being that you're such different people.
13: Yeah, as you say, we are very different on uh, on the when we're on the court and uh, off the court thing we have different mentality but uh, it's not bad i think it's just uh, uh add up um, to to our personality it uh, helps me to to relax a little bit because uh, you know sometimes i can be t- too tough on myself and um in the same time, you know, I just try to, to work really hard um, every time that uh, I go on court. And that's, that's my mentality. That's what helps me to, to improve, I think. And uh, he helps me a lot. Uh, also, uh, when I had um, some injuries, um, it was a difficult time for me. So he, he knows how to, how to handle it and uh, helped me a lot.
3: The WTA Tour seems to be so deep right now in terms of the talent level. I mean, if you look at a, a draw at really any tournament across the board and you're getting first, second round matches, that would be wonderful finals to watch even. How much has the um, quality of play on tour changed since you came on the tour?
13: Definitely, uh, we had a massive change. Everyone is, uh, is extremely fit. Everyone is traveling with three, four coaches, uh, which is, uh, you know, I don't think been uh, before. And um, I think that's why everyone is fit. Everyone is ready. Everyone is extremely motivated. So I think this uh, really uh, raised uh, the level and uh, the players are extremely fit. So that's why I think uh, the everyone is, uh, is very dangerous to play in in doesn't matter which uh, stage of the tournament
3: tennis goes through so many changes things like Hawkeye for review um, on court coaching this Fed Cup changes that are coming uh, what's something that you would like to see personally perhaps adjust or change on the uh, the professional tennis circuit
13: I think so far it's uh, going in the right uh, direction not so sure about the the coaching because uh, you know at the beginning I was already not so sure about this but it's um uh, I think um, we we try new things it's it's important to know uh and to to see how it works and that's uh, how we learn and move forward
3: Last question for you is uh, The last time I I met up with you was in New York City at the tiebreak tennis event uh, a year ago, right when Serena Williams was making her return to the game. And at the time, you spoke about how eager you were to face her once again if you could. That hasn't happened yet, I believe. How much are you looking forward to to facing Serena Williams at uh, another point here uh, down the road?
13: Definitely. No, she's um, amazing. Player and uh, great champion, so for sure I want to face uh, the the players like this to you know to to compete against them and uh, the same I think with with Maria. It's um, yeah, it's it's always uh, uh, amazing opportunity to play against against them.
7: Are you-
0: When we spoke with Vasek Pospisil on episode 11 of Matchpoint Canada, he was just making his comeback from surgery to repair a herniated disc. Now, what would transpire from him into the end of 2019 was nothing short of incredible. He took out the ninth seed, Karen Hachenoff, at the U.S. Open in the first round. He reached the round of 16 at the Masters 1000 in Shanghai. He won back-to-back challenger events in Las Vegas and Charlottesville, and then he helped backstop Canada to a finals appearance at Davis Cup with a few huge singles wins and crucial doubles victories. Here is just a portion of our conversation with Vashik just prior to his return at Wimbledon.
3: Vashik, how tough is it to rejoin the Tour when the rest of the fields had six to seven months of competition already under their belt? I mean, you talk about how you've you've had one match back. That was against Felix Oje-Aliassime, one of the hottest players on Tour this year. Um, and, And did facing him make it any more difficult, being that obviously you know each other so well?
14: Yeah, well, you know, it's definitely tough because, I mean, like I said, this is my first layoff and there's, there's just, there are a ton of questions, you know, question marks going on in my head, like, how is it going to be coming back? How is, you know, since it's the first time that I've, I've, you know, been away from the tour for eight months. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm super motivated and I'm confident that, that I'll, you know, get my ranking back up, but you can never really be sure. Right. So you always have these, these doubts, but but uh but at the same time you know i'm training really well and i'm i'm hitting a good ball so i'm sure i'll come back uh and hopefully better than ever and you know i'm playing felix was definitely uh an interesting uh comeback match i think the toughest part about playing felix actually was was just because he's you know he's one of the most physical guys on tour which is saying a lot considering he's only 18 and i remember joking before the tournament with my team saying you know it'd be good to play somebody that wasn't that isn't very physical, you know, to kind of, but, and then the draw came out and we were kind of laughing about it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at the same time, it was kind of nice to play a friend uh, and Canadian a uh, first match back.
3: We've seen this year um, with Andy Murray in particular, just how scary an injury can be to an athlete where at one point it appeared as though his career was even unlikely to continue. How serious was the surgery that you had to go through? And was there any worry at, at any point about whether or not you'd be able to resume playing at the same high level you've been accustomed to?
14: Uh well, definitely. I mean, I think anytime, uh, I mean, like I said, okay, it's my first surgery, but I think anytime you're going under the knife and you're getting operated, you know, there's always a risk, right? Especially when you're dealing with the lower back and you, you, you hear all these stories of guys going, getting operations and then, you know, coming back and never really quite playing at the high level that they played at before. So of course there was uh, a lot of, you know, there was some, some anxiety about that. And, and even now, right. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but, but uh but i mean i had a great surgeon and and right now the the body responded extremely well so i'm grateful for that but uh for sure it's 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 always scary you know when you're going to to operate so so uh especially i guess when you're talking about lower back or hips or i mean i guess any operation really but but i'm just i'm just grateful that i'm pain free right now so I take it day by day,,
0: and I think uh, we're grateful as well. I have so many wonderful memories of watching you on the watching you on the court, particularly in the single side in 2014, reaching that career high, doing so well. Uh, you mentioned y- that you're hitting a good ball. it feels like are you setting any certain goals in, in your return kind of for the latter half of this season in, in terms of results, or is it really sort of a day by day week by week type of process?
14: Yeah, it's it's a week-by-week week process, of course. I think the the main thing is just trying to concentrate on improving and getting the high level back. And obviously, once that's back, the ranking won't be there because I've, I've been out for so long, and, and that'll take care of itself. So I'm trying not to think about the ranking, even though it's hard not to. I mean, I, I do, do want to get back uh, – you know, sooner rather than later, but that's not the way you got to look at it, right? You have to look at the process and the process will take you to, to that ranking where you, where you, where you belong. So uh, it'll definitely be, I'll definitely have to be very patient, uh, for the next, you know, half, half year, year or so. And, and just, uh, trust that, uh, that it'll take me to, to, you know, back to the top 50, cause that's, you know, still where I want to go. And I feel like I still have my best tennis ahead of me. And, um, just can't get ahead of myself. It's just really going on the court and working hard every day and and staying motivated. That's the key. I mean, if you have the motivation, then then uh, anything is possible when you put in the hours. If you're not motivated, then you know you can hope and dream all you want, but it's not going to take you anywhere.
0: Uh, I think uh, one thing that's been great to see certainly uh, on the men's tour, and we had the opportunity a bit over a month ago to speak with Kevin Anderson, who's an example of an older player uh, sort of reaching his best years uh, at an older age. And you're still just 29, um, not into your 30s yet. And we have 10 players uh, above 30 in our top 20 right now. Is that also just inspiring to know that uh, these days it seems like men uh and women can really extend their careers and, and play longer on the tennis court
14: yeah definitely i mean especially looking at roger who's 37 and he's uh playing as good as ever and and in general i guess you know the the average age of the top top guys is going up i guess that comes with you know advancements in science sports science and injury prevention and medicine and everything and the fitness and you name it so that's definitely encouraging because I know 10 years ago, I, if if I'd be looking at my age 29 and thinking, you know, maybe it's uh, I got only a couple of years left in me. But but right now I'm pretty optimistic with uh, with still having some good years in front, and and uh, I'm not sure how many that'll be. But I know that that uh, you know I'm staying optimistic and and positive, and I I really do believe you know deep down that that I I'm not done and I have my best tennis ahead. I feel like I'm improving every year and it's just about keeping the body healthy and and getting fit you know right now you're seeing these guys tennis is just so physical if you're if you're if you're covering the court and you're you have good endurance and and you've done done the work in the gym then um i mean that translates on the court. i think more than ever right now
0: In the summer, it wasn't just Rogers Cup that came to the city of Toronto. Tennis fans were also treated here to the Invesco Series Legends event, a one-night mini-tournament as James Blake, Jim Courier, Andy Roddick, and Robbie Ginepri all came to town for some matches. It was James Blake who won the event. James, Andy Roddick, and Jim Courier were also all available to speak with us at Matchpoint Canada as we listen back to portions of all three interviews with the legends. Um the older guys on the ATP tour these days seem to have a stranglehold still. Does
3: that apply in Invesco Tennis? Are you going to no. show the young guys how it, <laughs> I how wish it goes that, tonight?
15: I wish that were the case. Uh, so far, that's not been true. The younger guys are coming in strong now. I mean, guys like the guys I'll be playing tonight, guys like Tommy Haas and Leighton Hewitt and Juan Carlos Ferrero is coming into play later this year. Um, it, it's going to be a challenge, and I like a challenge, but uh, I've been putting in the work, so that's what it takes. I've got to be on the court. I've got to be uh, sharp to be able to compete with these guys.
3: So what parts of game do you still like or are you still satisfied with and what's the hardest thing to maintain?
15: The good things remain good so my serve and my forehand tend to, tend to be pretty reliable for me and the weaker parts of my game my backhand and my volleys just if I'm not doing them as much as I need to be they can be a little bit faulty so it's all about repetitions for me if I'm in good form and, and calm on the court things happen in the right way.
3: Back in the day, when you'd hit sort of 30, it seemed like for most players that was nearing the end. Yeah. And now we've got Roger, who just turned 38. Novak and Rafa aren't getting any younger either, but the three of them are still dominating. And other guys in their 30s are doing quite well yes. also. What's the difference between now and, and back then? Obviously, three of the all time greats, so that's sure. something. But what in terms yeah. of.
15: I think you could sort of put those guys aside and what they're achieving is at a, at a different level. They're just, I mean, obviously, they are who they are for what the game is. But there are other players in their 30s, guys like John Isner and Luciana Lopez and in their 40s even with Karlovich that have found a way to be at their best later in the career and I think as much as anything there's a, a been a mental shift for players deciding they were going to play longer and planning for it there's obviously the prehab and the rehab that they're doing to make sure that they stay healthy and fit and I think it's really important for those players also to take mental breaks uh, as much as anything because 30 was sort of the end of the line for for most of the players in my generation and that seems to be kind of the mid-life point for players these days, mid-career point.
3: But younger players on the ATP or even the WTA Tour are exciting you these days that you want to come watch and you think are going to bring more fans to the table once the Serenas yeah. and the Rodgers
15: and Novaks do retire one day. I know I'm in Canada so this will be a popular answer but it go. would have been my same answer no matter what. I mean I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, Felix and, and Dennis and I'm a big fan of Bianca and her and just the the variation that she brings to the game is super exciting Uh, there are other very good young players that I'm interested in as well but they're uh, three really bright lights that I think are going to offer us a lot of entertainment and a lot of excitement over the years. So, um, you know, North American tennis is going great. It's funny,
3: the first time I saw you doing one of these events was in Hamilton, Ontario, about 10 years ago, and John McEnroe joked with me and said Canada would have a top-10 player if the sport was played on ice. And here we are now, it's legitimately happening. It's quite a change for our our nation. Do you think a a sort of rivalry in tennis between Canada and the U.S. could be something that uh, that fans might see for the first time? If
15: it's something that sparks sparks more high-level play, I'm all for it um, you know I think that's it's, it's a great thing to have someone that you're chasing someone that can make you better we've seen that with the big three of men's tennis and how they and, and Andy Murray and Stan Wawrinka, how they had to evolve to catch each other and pass each other and it just kept handing the baton so if that's what happens between Canada and the United States I think that'd be a great thing
3: what part of the game has held up the best since you've retired, and what part do you find is, is the hardest to kind of get back out there and, and get back to that level or, or anything close to that level?
16: Yeah, surprisingly, the movement has st- stuck around a little bit. I'm, I'm I can still run a little bit and I can still hit my forehand, but everything else is uh, is gone by the wayside. The serve, my shoulder feels terrible, so it just uh, it's tough for me to get a uh, get much on my serve and my backhand. Not that it was ever good, but now it's uh it's pretty abysmal. So I got I got to run some more and try to hit more forehands.
3: Who among the other uh, old timers or sorry legends, I guess I yeah. should call. All you guys has uh, has kept it up the best, would you say? And, and and who takes these things the most
16: competitively? Well, McEnroe takes it the most competitively for sure. Still, I mean, we all see that and we all know that about him. It's not an act uh, with him; he's serious. But um, Tommy Haas probably has kept it up the most. He still he still hits quite a bit and uh, gets out and hits with some of the current pros and stuff. So
8: um,
16: he's you know as the touring director, Indian Wells, he gets out there and hits a bunch. And then in LA, he's got a lot of friends that he hits with. So he stays in probably the best shape out of all of us. But we can uh, we still get out there and we compete. The cat
3: what else is keeping you busy these days? Perhaps outside of tennis, I see a lot of your tweets these
16: days. Obviously, are about more social justice, political yeah. type of issues. Yeah. What what's keeping you busy and keeping your focus these days mostly? The thing that's keeping me the busiest. Is my two kids, and that's the, it's the most enjoyable, is most fun, most rewarding. Um, I love being home. I love the um, sort of the luxury I've been afforded with uh, my career being so young in my in my life that uh, my main career is done. So now I'm home a lot. I, I'm at drop off. I'm I'll be tomorrow. I'll be at the barbecue lunch with my kids at school. I'll, you know, I'll take them to take them to soccer practice and flag football practice, and you know, have fun with them. And you know, that's that's been the most fun for me. And I, I still work enough to keep me busy, especially with uh, staying involved in tennis, with the touring director role in Miami Open, Tennis Channel, um, Analyst, and then uh, playing these events, so it's enough to keep me busy, but not too much to keep me away from my kids, uh, more than I'd ever want to be. How old are your kids right now? And seven and five. Okay, and uh, tennis rackets in their hands yet? How's that going? A little bit. The older one uh, loves everything right now, in terms of uh, being athletic. Her favorite right now, I think, is flag football. She loves soccer. Uh, she played basketball last season. I think she said she wants to play baseball at some point, too. So. I just love the fact that she's active and doing everything. And tennis, they, they still play. They did. They both did a little, uh, little like one-week camp this summer. And it's more just, uh, it's a little more babysitting than actual tennis uh, at that at that age with them. And they're just just learning and having fun. So, if they pick it up, great. I'll be there as a resource. If they don't, uh, I'd be happy to be. A, a soccer dad, or a, you know, or a track dad, or whatever they want to do. Swimming. They love. They both love swimming too. So I'm happy with them to find. I don't care what they do as long as they're they're passionate about something.
3: Uh, speaking of people being passionate
16: about things, on the
3: ATP Tour these days, it seems like a lot of players are looking for improvements in terms of sharing of revenue, and there's been some changes going on in terms of the leadership behind the scenes as well. Yeah. Was that stuff as big a deal back in your day, we just didn't hear about it as much because of the lack of social media, <laughs> yeah. or do you find that it's occupying a bigger sort of space right now in the sport?
16: Yeah, I think there was a lot of talk of it even when I was on tour. There was um, there were rumblings, and there were, there was always the feeling that the, the Grand Slams had the opportunity to pay more, and now they've stepped up. And- in my opinion, since I retired in 2013, I think the prize money has more than doubled in most of the slams, so that's that's a huge jump as compared to the 14 years I was on tour. I think it didn't even double in 14 years and now it's doubled in 6 years. So. It is going in the right direction, but I also understand from the players' point of view that you always want to feel like, hey, you, we're the ones that are out there that are product. We're the ones that are um, putting in the, the early mornings, the lifting, the training, the getting on planes, the doing all this to, to get out there and put on the put on the the best performance. So we should be paid fairly. And um, so I understand both sides. It's just I think it does get way more attention now because partly some of the players at the top are very very involved and they're absolute international superstars and icons so um, for them to get involved it makes a big difference and also just the the prize money is already so big and visible that then it it gets distorted in the press I think sometimes because you don't want to look like you're you're, you've made a hundred million dollars, and you're complaining you deserve more. It's more that they're fighting for the players that are playing in the qualifiers and playing in challengers, and should be making a living when they're 150 in the world, and they're they're just kind of just getting by at that at that uh, level.
0: Andy, I'm just looking back at your career, and you must have pretty fond memories uh, of Canada. That stretch there, 2002 through 2004, you had a pair of finals in Toronto. You had the Masters 1000 win in Montreal. What do you remember from those years of playing in Canada? And and how fun is it to be coming back uh, to do these types of champions nights in, in Toronto?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I had a lot of great years, even even before the the years you mentioned. I remember in in 2001. Um, I feel like in Montreal, I, I might've barely gotten into my own ranking for the first time. And I had my first win over a, a world number one in Gustavo Cuerten. Uh So that was a huge milestone. And then in 02, the final, you mentioned, I, I became, uh, I think I passed a couple of my heroes in the rankings um, with, uh, with uh, Pete and, you know, kind of was flirting with the number one American. And so that was that was crazy for me. Um, You know, I I remember kind of that day where I, you know, became the number one American for the first time. And that was, that was nuts. Um, The win in 03, um, you know, it was the, it it was, uh, it was the start of the space between wins against Roger. (laughs) I I beat, I beat him there. And then I I waited a little while before I decided to do it again. Um, But uh, it was just great. And you know, the, the, the fans are amazing. And it was, it was fun to kind of go back and forth between the two cities that was uh you know it didn't happen anywhere else uh with uh, with with the master series events so um you know i, I always felt lucky to, to to be able to go up there and it was uh it, it was a great time and um especially early in my career i i, I tended to play pretty well up there
0: Most of Canadian Felix Auger-Aliassime's amazing highlights of 2019 came in the first half of the season. In February, at the age of 18, he became the youngest ATP 500 event finalist ever. He fell to Pablo Cuevas in three sets competing there for the Rio Open title. He pushed to the semifinals of the Miami Open, getting huge wins over Borna Coric and Nikola Baselashvili. In May, on clay in France, he reached the finals in Lyon. He made a finals run on grass in Stuttgart. And And he reached a career-high ranking of number 17 by October. We were able to catch up with Felix in November, just ahead of Canada's historic Davis Cup Finals run in Madrid.
12: What
3: was it like the first time you represented Canada in in Davis Cup play, if you go back to your memories from that tie? And and just overall, what does it mean to play and represent your country?
17: It was uh, a great honour because, uh, obviously, when you're not playing just for yourself, but... uh, you know your your teammates and you're in a group uh you're representing a lot of staff. uh you know there's a lot of fans that are coming out uh it's different You know it's different pressure different uh expectations uh different also yeah just uh just the the, the overall thing is, is just uh it's just a little more than than just playing for yourself so you know that adds obviously uh uh a lot of uh, of pressure that we're maybe not used to, but honestly, I like it because, you know, it's good to be to be part of a group and it's good to represent your country. And uh, if I take myself back to uh, our last tie in Bratislava, it was, uh, you know, one of my one of my good memories um, this year for sure.
0: And I uh, feel like some some fans might be unaware of this, but of course, you and Denis Shapovalov, would have great memories uh, competing at this very same site in Madrid back in 2015, where the the two of you won the Junior Davis Cup uh, under yeah. under 16. Um, what memories do you have of, of that event, and how significant of a milestone was that maybe for the both of you uh, achieving something uh, as great as that so early on?
17: Yeah, he's actually in the same room as me right now and being a bit annoyed. <laughs> 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 no, no. no, but yeah, it's it's good memories for us because. Uh, Actually, you know, when we come out uh, here in Madrid, and uh, you know, both of us uh, achieving what we did uh, four years ago was uh, was important for us at the time, and uh, you know, we both of us keep really good memories from it. And um, you know, uh, as uh, as uh, 16-year-olds, it was uh, it was quite you know quite a quite a big thing. It was the first time for Canada, and uh, you know, I remember we were we were really proud of of what we did there, and uh, to come back now and to 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 be uh, to re- representing team canada in the main davis cup is um is special we we always wanted to be here and uh, here we are now and uh, and uh dennis playing number 1 and me number 2 it's uh it's quite special yeah.
3: You mentioned that Dennis was in the background there. Sounds like you guys were uh, having a good time. Is there anyone on yeah. this this team, uh, like Daniel Nestor used to be known as sort of the practical joker on Team Canada. Is there anybody now that's filled those shoes that uh, you have to watch out for any practical jokes or who just keeps the mood sort of light for the entire team?
17: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, our, 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 what would I say, our therapy, uh, like uh masseuse guy, uh, Jeff Ludo. He's quite, a, he's quite a funny guy. So he keeps the mood. Uh, he keeps a good mood in the group. Uh, uh, <laughs> but you know, I think every everyone—you know—everyone you know, uh, everyone really um, gets along well, and uh, we have we have you know good good atmosphere. Hey, you, you Canadians!
3: Yeah. It's great to have you all together for an event like this because if you look yeah, back at, good, the, at the at the summer, it seemed like you were playing a Canadian almost every week. I mean, you and Vashik had to play it at Wimbledon. Yeah. You faced Milos at uh, Coop Rogers, and then Dennis at the U.S. Open as well. well what's it like yeah. when you guys have to face one another, given that you're you're obviously so close with each other?
17: Yeah, it's better to have uh, to have my team this around. Uh, very easy to play good friends and. You know we get along so well. When when we have to face each other, it's, uh, it's not it's not a, not the best. But uh, so that's why I think these these weeks are important for us to to you know yeah be in the same in the same side of of the team. You know all have the same goal because you know we get our, we get we get together for dinners and we have such a good time. But we don't really have the occasion to do that when we're on the road playing grand Slam, playing the masters because you know everyone has a schedule, and everyone has a different draw. And sometimes, like this summer, we face each other, so it's not really the same atmosphere. So it's good to to be together with with the boys and, and share a good time.
0: And in terms of uh, you guys and, and results, things have been uh, going so incredibly well in 2019. Just lately, of course, Dennis winning his first title in Stockholm, getting to the Paris final. Yeah. We had Vashik win a couple of challengers and, and Braden cracked yeah. the, cracking the top 100. Are, are yeah. you guys able to kind of feed off of one another energy wise when, when a few of you are playing like su- such great tennis?
17: Uh, I guess so. I think uh, sometimes you don't realize it. Really, but you know, it's kind of a an energy that's just around the Canadian tennis right now, and even on the women's side too. With with Bianca, I think you know everyone is in, inspiring each other, and everyone is pushing each other also in a very uh, positive way. And uh, obviously, you got like you said, you know, got you know was coming back from injury, playing his first match against me in Wimbledon. But since then, you know, he's been playing better and better every week. Uh, you know, Dennis ending the the season really strong, so. Uh, there's a good energy around, the, around the, the guys right now and around the tennis in general.
0: And uh, for yourself, 2019 has uh, been such a fantastic season as well. The three ATP finals, the, the master semifinal mm-hmm. in Miami, and, and breaking uh, inside the top 20 at 1.2. I, I know you'd had a goal yeah. of top 50. Uh, was was there something that maybe clicked like early on in the season which just brought your level to, to different heights? <laughs>
17: I think you know with the training over the months. I think your your, your level just reaches um, a certain point, and then after it's just about being able to maintain it and being able to be consistent. That brings you to the to the top 20, to brings you to finals. So I think I was I was able even last year to reach peaks of level that I've had this year, but I wasn't really able to maintain it. And I think you know, for example, after the Davis Cup in Bratislava. I think it really gave me the confidence that like, okay, playing in pressure moments, being able to win key matches in key moments. I think it gave me the confidence to go off from there, go to South America, reach my first final. And then after I just felt like I was, you know, a bit on the roll and uh, I think, yeah, confidence plays a, plays a big part. But the, the, the main thing I would say like the 80% is really the work that's been put uh, over the months and over the years behind that's obviously gotten me to that level. But I think when everything clicked and all the puzzle was together, uh, yeah, I was just able to to play good weeks after weeks.
0: That does it for our best of episode of Matchpoint Canada. A big thank you to all of our avid listeners throughout 2019. We want to wish everyone a happy holiday, happy new year, and we look forward to reconnecting with you all again in 2020.